Thank you, Nathan. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, so we are continuing our series through the book of Matthew, our series of series through the book of Matthew, talking about who is Jesus. And so we're going to be looking at who Jesus is and what he does. And this morning, we're talking about Jesus is our rescuer. Rescuer is one of the oldest cliches in all of our fairy tales, right? The, the main story that we think of in a fairy tale is a prince comes and fights a dragon to rescue a princess who is trapped in a tower. That's, that's just the default. That's what we naturally think of. And, and we like that because it always ends with everybody lives happily ever after, right? So we enjoy the story because we know, oh, this ends well. This is a good thing. Yeah, the princess had some problems, but she got rescued. Everything's good. Now, however, we think differently about that story. So we're a little bit more sensitive. The, pr the princess probably needs to be an active participant in her own rescue, right? She's not, she shouldn't be passive. She shouldn't be just locked in the tower. She should be able to, to kind of hold her own. Also, we need to look at the dragon. What are the dragon's motives here? Is the dragon looking at, you know, is he trying to overthrow royalty here? Is he, is he overthrowing an oppressive dictatorship? Like, what, what are the dragon's motives in kidnapping the princess? And, and so we think about this from a, a bunch of different perspectives now, and we're not sure why we're doing that. I think a piece of the reason is that we are uncomfortable with the idea of needing rescue. So we're fine as long as we associate ourselves with the prince and we're the one that's running in to rescue people, but we don't want to think that we need to be rescued. We don't want to be the one that's powerless, that's trapped. And so we're good being the rescuer, assuming it doesn't take a lot of effort. Like we don't really want to pour ourselves out and, you know, actually fight a dragon, but we're willing to sort of rescue other people if that's what's necessary. What we don't want to do is feel helpless. Unfortunately, that's actually where we're at. We are people that cannot rescue ourselves, that we're not, we're not capable of achieving our own success on our own. Like that's, that's not a thing that we can do. And so today we're gonna be in Matthew chapter 14 and we're gonna talk about how Jesus is our rescuer. We're gonna talk about why we need that, but also the fact that Jesus is our rescuer. Jesus is our rescuer is my title. It's my big idea, and it's half of my points. So if you just get that one down, you're probably good. Uh, two weeks ago, I was up here and I talked about John the Baptist and the fact that John the Baptist was killed by Herod. That was his, that was Jesus's cousin. And at the end of that story, I didn't really cover it, but Steve talked about it a little bit the, the following week, that Jesus tried to get away in order to spend some time in prayer with the Father. So Jesus heard that his cousin was dead and he needed to process that, which is understandable. And so he sort of goes off into the hills. And then what happened was a bunch of people followed him. Jesus, being compassionate, fed them, right? That was Steve's message last week, that Jesus fed these 5,000 people, even though they were interrupting what should have been a chance for him to, to disconnect from his ministry and, and be uh, with, with, uh, by himself with the Father. So chapter 12 and 13 was what we read. That was sort of the transition between those two messages. It says, uh, and his disciples came. So John the Baptist's disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there to a boat in a desolate place by himself. When the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. So Jesus is trying to intentionally get away to be in prayer and everybody follows him. Jesus is loving, Jesus is compassionate. And so he dealt with that. But... 
Now we're going to talk about after dinner. So last week we fed the 5,000. Now it's after dinner. So picking up in Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So Jesus was intentional about spending time alone with God. That was a decision that he made. He was in the middle of ministry. He didn't quit ministry. He didn't stop doing the work, but he was very intentional about spending some time alone with God. The work didn't get in the way of that. His popularity didn't get away in that. The fact that the people loved him and just wanted to get his free food didn't get away with that. He said, I'm gonna do the ministry. I'm gonna meet the needs of this people. And then once that's done, I'm gonna separate myself from that and I'm gonna go be alone and pray. All of his work was actually rooted in his relationship with the Father. He's not ministering because he's capable of ministering, and then also he prays because he can do that too. He's, he's intentional with his ministry, in his relationship with the Father because all the things that he does flow out of that relationship. And this is how Jesus did it. He goes alone to pray, and then when he's rejuvenated and, and sort of able to come back in, he checks back in and, and he goes back into ministry. Jesus is supposed to be our example. You guys have probably heard that before. Jesus is God in the flesh. He had a lot more capacity than we do. And yet he still was very intentional about taking time alone to pray to his heavenly father. The reason that I'm starting off, Jesus is our rescuer here, is because we sometimes think that we can do this work or we don't need a rescuer or whatever because we haven't actually spent any time alone with the Father, we get in sort of in our own heads. Culturally, we're surrounded by this idea that we need to save ourselves, that we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, that if we work a little bit harder and accomplish a little bit more and can take on a little bit extra, then we can do the work and we can save ourselves. And some of us even might think that we can kind of save the world. Like if everybody would just listen to me, I could fix this problem. If everybody would pay attention to me, like I know what the answer is. You guys just have to do what I tell you to do. We kind of have that feeling. And we can be seduced into thinking that we are our own rescuer. That we need the power in order to accomplish the things that need to be done. And even in our Christian lives, we think that maybe, maybe if God would give us the authority or this extra little bit of energy or whatever, we could probably handle it. We could probably fix that problem. We could probably manage this. Our lives would be fine. Like we're right there if everybody would just let us do our thing. And Jesus doesn't do his own thing. Jesus goes and he connects with the Father and then he comes back from his time with the Father and he's like, this is what my ministry is. Why? Because that's what the Father told me to do. Our rescue doesn't come from us. It comes from Jesus. And it's rooted in the fact that Jesus had a relationship with the Father. And so our own rescue doesn't come from us. It's Jesus. Jesus is our rescuer. And so what we need to do is spend some time alone with God so that we recognize who we are, that we're not our own rescuer, what God calls us to do, and that we're not actually the ones that are in charge, right? If we're quiet before God, then suddenly it changes our perspective. We recognize that God is God and we're not, and we need to maybe work what he's called us to do rather than what we think needs to happen. My first application question is this. 
what changes do I need to make to spend more time with God? And I say that because if we don't do this intentionally, it doesn't happen. We might have somewhat of a prayer life if we don't plan for it, but it's mostly gonna be like, oh no, I messed this up again, right? Like that's, that's when we just pray off the top of our heads most of the time. When do I intentionally take some time to, to spend uh, alone time with God? Do I regularly take time to pray? Regularly, consistently. Is that like 20 seconds? <laughs> or is that a little bit longer? Do I need to adjust something in my life to make sure that that happens consistently? It's not a terrible thing to schedule this. I know that it sounds bad. You're like, no, I have a relationship with God. And relationships, you're like, do you schedule it? You know what? You schedule a lot of your relationships. You get lunch with friends. You have date night with your spouse. Like, there's lots of things in your life that you schedule. You can take 10 minutes of your schedule and be like, this is my alone time with God. Jesus spent time with his heavenly father. That was where his ministry came from. And so if we want to recognize our need for a rescuer, if we want to actually have a relationship with God the Father, we need to do that too. So that's step one. Um, actually, that's like step four, but we'll get to that at the end. Uh, so Jesus spends some time with the Father, and then he's going to go catch up with the disciples in the boat. Jesus doesn't have a boat. He decides to head out on foot. Verse 25, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But the disciples saw him walking on the sea and they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. So Jesus spends most of the night in prayer. Uh, the fourth watch is between three and 6 a.m. So Jesus was praying probably past three, they probably can only see Jesus because it's starting to be daybreak, right? So they, they see something in the early, early dawn coming to them on the water because Jesus just spent the last eight hours in prayer and they freak out. <laughs> this, is, this is weird to me. Okay, so Jesus is walking on the water. Was that the plan the whole time? Like he, he sends the disciples away in the boat. Like go to the boat, I'm gonna dismiss the crowds. Like what was the plan? Was, was he like, I'm gonna send the boats away, I'm gonna catch up to them later, it's gonna be hilarious. Uh, and it's, it's not like this big miracle of casting out demons or healing people. Like this isn't Jesus trying to prove something or demonstrate compassion or doing anything. Like Jesus is just like, ah, I gotta get there, I'm gonna walk on the water. That's a whole different level, guys. Like, nobody's plan is like, let's go for a walk in the storm. Like, let's go do that. No, that's, only God looks at the water and says, I'm gonna walk over there, right? Like, that's the only way that this happens. And understandably, the disciples are freaked out. They're terrified. They've never seen this before. We kind of ding the disciples for this, right? They, they shouldn't believe in ghosts. Honestly, I've never seen a ghost. I've also never seen someone walk on water. I've never seen God in the flesh. So there's a bunch of things that I'm thinking through that I haven't experienced. If something was coming to me over the water, I don't know why a ghost isn't rational. Like I've got to reorganize all my categories to begin with. Okay, Jesus did it. They didn't realize that Jesus could do it. So I'm just thinking in the moment of panic, you're probably not thinking this through. Also, it's apparently pretty windy, pretty nasty out weather-wise. I've gotten lost in my own neighborhood in a storm running. Like that's a thing that happened. I'm not super proud of that, but it's the reality, right? So if it's dark and it's windy and it's stormy and you see something coming to you over the water, 
okay, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. It might be a ghost. Jesus, however, is not trying to scare them. Jesus isn't there to cause panic. And so he immediately says, whoa, 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 hold on. It's, it's me. Don't be afraid. Don't panic. It's not a ghost. I'm here. Everything's going to be all right. And actually, maybe the best translation is in the NLT. It says, don't be afraid. Take courage. I am here. I say that's the best translation because the I am here might be significant. I'm not going to die on this hill. But when Jesus says I am, a lot of times it's significant. So it might be here. Uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with the whole arc of the Bible, so when God originally tells his name to Moses, way back in Exodus, Moses says, God, what's your name? I need to know. And God says, I am that I am. And that's like the name. And then he says, Moses, go tell them that I am sent you. I was like, okay, that's your name. That's a weird name. I don't understand that. Right? So then throughout the Old Testament, the word that they use for God is basically the Hebrew word for I am. So this is, it's in Greek, it's not in Hebrew anymore, so it's a little bit different. But when Jesus comes, he says, I am here. He's actually saying the same word, but translated into Greek. So Jesus is walking them to the water, and they're like, ah, it's a ghost. And he's like, nope, it's I am. Now, again, it's also just a phrase that people say, so I'm not going to die on this hill. But I think what happens is we see later, the disciples recognize the type of power that it takes to walk on water is only from God. And so when Jesus says, I am here, he's saying, I'm present, don't be alarmed, I'm not a ghost. He also is probably saying, I'm the God of the universe that has the capacity to walk on water. Your panic is a little bit out of line. He's comforting them with his presence because not just that he's not a ghost, but also he's God. And if we think about this metaphorically, this is an easy one to make, guys. <laughs> like, we just understand this one. What are storms? Storms are bad things that happen in our lives. The ancients would have ex understood a storm, to, or the sea in general, but a storm specifically, to represent like chaos and stuff that's, you know, uncontrollable. And so when we look at storms the way that we think of storms as problems in our lives, or the way the ancients thought of storms as just uncontrolled chaos, what we see is that God is physically present regardless of the circumstances. We're going through a hard time, we're in the middle of chaos, God is there, he's present. And he's not overwhelmed by that. He's not just there, like Jesus isn't in the boat panicking and be like, I am God, no, he's just walking through the storm. By the way, guys, in case you were worried, he's God, right? He's just, he's handling it, he's got it under control. And sometimes, <laughs> this is the other thing, Sometimes the thing we're afraid of in the middle of the storm is actually Jesus. Like if you read this, they seem to be worried about the storm. They didn't really panic until they saw Jesus. So sometimes when circumstances are a little bit crazy, the thing that really panics us is that it's actually Jesus that's walking toward us. And we don't know what to do with that. There's a circumstance that Jesus is trying to lead us through and trying to walk with us and guide us and teach us, and we're panicked because of the circumstances. He's still God. He's still there, present in the middle of the storm, but we're worried because we don't know what's happening. And even when things go sideways, there's still opportunities for us to grow and to grow closer to him. And Peter gets it. 
Peter gets it for just a minute, verse 28. It says, and Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And so Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But he saw the wind and he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him saying, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So Jesus shows up, he's God in the flesh, he's completely unaffected by the storm. And Peter looks at him and has just enough faith to make this thing work, right? Listen, <laughs> we look at Peter and we immediately rip him to shed because shreds because Jesus says, oh, you have little faith. Also, Peter did have a little faith. Like there was some faith there. It wasn't, there, it wasn't no faith. And I think it's important for us to realize as we look at that, you can make fun of Peter for falling. Also, there's 11 guys that sat in that boat, right? They never got out. Leon Morris says it this way. We usually remember that Peter's faith failed and that Jesus drew attention to this, but we should bear in mind that it took courage for the apostle to venture out on the water at all. Getting out of that boat is a huge step of courageous faith. Peter at some level understands if Jesus is capable of walking on this water, I probably can too. And so Peter's a lot of times painted as foolish or overly eager or whatever, but also guys, Peter walked on the water. Like Jesus walked on the water. He's God, he's in the flesh, he can do that. Also, Peter walked on the water. Peter's just a fisherman. These kind of moments are amazing. We look at Jesus and we realize when he's doing the work, then we can accomplish everything. There's nothing that's impossible for Jesus. And therefore, when we're, we've got our faith in Jesus and he calls us, we can do anything too. Like, <laughs> it's Jesus walking on the, on the water. He's not a ghost, he's God in the flesh. And Peter looks at him and says, you know what? Jesus has done some amazing things but Jesus has also told me to do some things that I didn't think I could do, right? Peter had already been sent out with the disciples to teach and like cast out demons and heal. And he had done that because Jesus told him to do it. And now it kind of clicks in his brain. Oh, if Jesus tells me to do it, I can do it, doesn't matter. It's impossible, that's fine, Jesus can handle it. And so Jesus, Peter's sitting in that boat and he's like, if you're really Jesus, which he seems convinced that he is, he's like, you tell me to get out of this boat, I know I can walk on water. Peter recognize, right, recognizes that if, he's, if Jesus asks him to do something, he's capable of doing what's impossible. Question here is, where is Jesus asking you to step out of the boat? Keep in mind, I already said that one of the things that makes us afraid is that it's Jesus coming through the storm. Right, like sometimes we're actually afraid of what Jesus is doing. And this one's hard for me to make a really specific application because all of us are in different storms and all of us have different boats, metaphorically. Your boat might be the status quo and Jesus is asking you to have a tough conversation or to do something that might upset that. And you're terrified that you're gonna ruin this. Your boat might be an evening with Netflix three times a week and Jesus is saying, you need to stop that. That needs to be one night a week. You need to do something the other two. 
Your, might, your boat might be a, a sin that feels really safe, that feels really comfortable. And Jesus is like, you need to repent and you need to confess that to somebody and you need to walk away from that sin. And that sounds terrifying. Your boat might be your work. You might be really comfortable as long as you're working so many hours that you can't think. And Jesus is saying, you know what? You need to stop working, you need to be still, and you need to know that I'm God. I don't know what your step is. I don't know what your boat is. I do know that most of the time when Jesus specifically asked me to do something, it feels terrifying. If it wasn't fear-inducing, I probably would just do it anyway, right? Like, oh, that seems like a natural next step. But it is, it's terrifying. And, and so we have to reorient the way that we think about it to say, this is terrifying. The reason this is terrifying is because I can't do it. And I need Jesus to be the one that does it for me. The lesson isn't simply to recognize that Jesus is the one that can walk through the water in the storm. The real lesson is that if Jesus calls me to do it, I can, I can do it too. Of course, that only deals with the first part of that section because we know that Peter loses focus, right? He's willing to get out of the boat. He takes steps. We don't know how many. We don't know how far he went. But then what happened was is at some point along the way, Peter lost focus. Right? Verse 30 shows Peter not quite as good. His mistake was he got out of the boat and then he stopped looking at Jesus. It's easy to notice the wind. It's, it's easy to initially just notice the guy that's walking on the water. That one stands out. But once you've noticed that guy and you focused on that guy a little bit, you start to look around and you're like, wow, the weather really is crazy. Like it's really bad out here. And so Peter, focused on Jesus, gets out of the boat, starts walking toward him. And then he gets, I don't know, three quarters of the way there. And suddenly he's like, that's a crazy big wave. It is really windy out here. I cannot believe that I'm walking on water, <laughs> right? So he had that faith, he had that trust, and then he gets halfway there and he starts paying attention to all the other details and he starts to sink. I was thinking about this this week. How fast do you think he sank? Do you think it was like, oh no, Jesus, or if it was like, <laughs> he's like slowly going down, like, ah, oh, Jesus, this is not good. Like, how fast, just beside the point, really. Uh, <laughs> the thing is, is Jesus doesn't start to fall. The boat doesn't start to sink. It's just Peter. Why? Because all the other stuff was immaterial. P Peter stopped focusing on Jesus. He stopped looking at the one that was actually sustaining him. And that's when it started to, to he started to fail. Jesus is standing in the water. It's as easy for him to pull up a big old fisherman as it is to make sure that the boat keeps floating, right? He's the God of the universe. He's making the wood the correct buoyancy to float in the storm, right? That's, that's also one of the things he's doing at this moment. So he just reaches down and picks up Peter. By the way, church history says that Peter was a big dude and Jesus doesn't seem to mind. He's just a fisherman, pick him up. Um, Jesus' power isn't the issue. Jesus' ability to retain Peter above the water, not a problem. It's the fact that Peter lost focus. Peter's not looking at Jesus. He's not thinking about what Jesus is capable of. He's just looking at the big storm, which also Jesus made, but Peter was distracted. I don't want to be too hard on Peter. This cycle of being excited and jumping in with all your heart and being faithful for 
20 yards and then getting a little bit distracted. This is, this is the Christian life, guys. This happens to all of us all the time, right? Like we see what God is doing, we wanna jump on board, we take a couple steps and then we start to get distracted because circumstances are crazy and there's all these other things that are going on and then we start to fall and then we're like, Jesus, I need you to save me. And Jesus is like, of course I'm gonna do that. And he picks us back up and he walks with us across the water. In 2008, Sarah and I prayed for a baby and God chose to answer that prayer. At the same time, we were also praying to move into a new house. And seven and a half months after God answered the baby prayer, he answered the house prayer. <laughs> it's terrible timing. Um, <laughs> I always tell people, don't move and have a kid the same month. It's a bad plan. Uh, but that's what God had. And you know what? In the middle of that, when that was happening, if I was focused on God and thinking about the fact that we had prayed for both of these things and that God was blessing us in both of these things and that he was gonna sustain us through it, I was okay. And when I wasn't focused on God and what a blessing this was, I was crying in the parking lot at work. Like there's, because why? Because I am not a person that's actually capable of selling a condo, buying a house, packing, moving, and having a kid all between Labor Day and Halloween. Like I don't have that capacity, guys. And I don't know anybody that does. I mean, maybe you do, I don't know. But the thing is, is not one of us have enough capacity to do all the things that we need to do. But what? If we stay focused on Jesus, it doesn't matter. Why? Because we suddenly have a capacity? No, because Jesus is the one that keeps us and sustains us and carries us through that. Peter didn't have the ability to walk on water. He did it, but that wasn't him. That was Jesus carrying him through that. And so when Jesus said, come, Peter's like, okay, I guess I can do this now. Why? Because he can do it? No, because Jesus told him to. When we focus on circumstances, we're all inadequate. If we're focused on Jesus, we're still inadequate, but it doesn't matter because he is. My question here is this. What are things that pull my focus off of Jesus? Sometimes it is the storm. Sometimes it's circumstances that are big and out of control and not manageable, and I start to look at that and I forget the fact that Jesus is in control. Sometimes it's actually the opposite. Sometimes it's the humdrum, boring daily routine and I just kind of stop looking at Jesus. Not because there's anything big that's distracting me, but because I don't have the discipline to, to remain focused on him. There's lots of different things that can distract us, but we have to look and say, okay, what pulls my focus off of Jesus? And then like, how do I get rid of that? <laughs> how do I refocus on Jesus? Because I can't do it, but he can or at least he's capable of making me be able to do it. How do I force myself to only look at Jesus? The disciples finally figured it out. Verse 32. When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. There's a theme of, of recognition that sort of runs through this whole passage and it's always just kind of underneath the surface. The, the disciples' fear back in verse 26 was because they didn't recognize Jesus. They see this something coming toward them over the waves and they, think, they just think it's a ghost. They don't know who it is and so they panic. Here, they do recognize him and suddenly they worship. Like that's, that's their response. 
It took him a little bit, right? It took him, <laughs> he called Peter, Peter walks out, they walk back together, he's holding Peter's hand, helps him get back in the boat, and then he gets back in the boat and immediately the, the wind stops. They're like, oh, now we know who you are. You're actually God in the flesh. Good job, guys. I, I'm sorry to be critical. Like, <laughs> they, they were working hard all night. Like, it's three in the morning. They were rowing hard, and suddenly, like, their buddy shows up, and also he's God in the flesh. So it's, it's a little bit disconcerting. I get that. The thing is, is as we read the Gospels, they probably should have understood this a little bit better. But they didn't, and they still didn't after this. Like, they said this, that Jesus, you're the Son of God, and they worship him. So there's an acknowledgement, there's some piece of this they know, and also they don't fully understand because they don't get all of it. Also, we don't get all of it. I don't know if you guys noticed that, but like we sit here and we worship and we're like, Jesus, you're the Son of God, and then we get into a storm and we forget that he's in control. So... Again, we'll extend them a little bit of grace. So all of that, Jesus is God and they recognize him as being God in the flesh. And really when we read that, what we recognize is that he doesn't just rescue the disciples from the storm, he rescues us from our storms, but also more importantly, he actually rescues us from sin. And we have to recognize that. That starts, that starts off as the most important piece. So Jesus was the son of God. He came to earth. He lived a perfect right, life, right? He had compassion on people. He's teaching people. He healed people. He did all of those things. He didn't do anything wrong. That's not because he was very shy and never stepped out and did anything, but because he always did the right thing. Like he was active in, in his rightness. His whole life was poured out in service to the people around him. And what happened is people didn't like that and they killed him for it. We were separated from God because of our sin, personally, and also all of us. And we deserve death, right? Romans says the wages of sin is death. And so our sin means that we deserve to die. But Jesus, as the perfect God-man, died in our place. So we deserved death because we were guilty. He deserved life because he's God and he died and he gave us, gave us what he deserves. And he took our sin and died our death in our place. And so we were ashamed, we were powerless, we were hopeless. We needed a rescuer. And that's what Jesus did. And because Jesus rescued us, when we come to him and we accept him as our, our savior, our rescuer, then we can have life with him in eternity. Like it doesn't have to end with our sin. It can end with an eternal relationship with Jesus because he was willing to die in our place. Paul explains it this way in, in Colossians 1. Now, Paul's famously wordy, so I didn't start at the beginning of the sentence because it was like 10 verses before. So Colossians 1 verses 12 and 14, we're picking up at the end of a long paragraph of Paul's prayer. So giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So he has delivered us, right? Delivered, rescued, very similar ideas. We're delivered from the domain of darkness. So we were living in sin. That was our natural place. And when Jesus came and died, he died in order to move us out of sin into his kingdom, 
the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus being the beloved son. So we were delivered out of the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of him, of his beloved son. So that's, that's sort of the overall plan that God did. And then in whom we have redemption. So in Jesus, we have redemption. That means that when he died, he paid the price. And so we're now his, we're, we're underneath Jesus's side. We're on his team and we have the forgiveness of sin. So all of our guilt, all of our shame, that's all gone. It's been forgiven, it's been washed away. Recognize Jesus as our rescuer moves us from rebellion against God into the kingdom of his beloved son. Have you accepted Jesus as your savior? Have you been willing to say, you know what, Jesus, I do need to be rescued. I don't have this covered on my own. And that's the start of it. That's, that's the first step in, in a life of relationship with, with Jesus. But Jesus does more than just that, <laughs> right? Like Jesus is our rescuer doesn't begin and end with redemption from sin. That's not the whole thing. Jesus rescues us from a whole lot more. Keep reading on the subject of recognition, verse 34. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched were made well. So Jesus comes to a new town. He's been there before, but he, they haven't been there recently. He goes into a new town and everybody's like, this is Jesus. Jesus has a lot of power. Everybody come on, we need healing. The same faith that allowed Peter to walk on the water is present here. Okay, they touched the fringe of his garment. That feels a little odd to us. Like we don't know what to do with that categorically, but it's not about touching the garment. It's about the faith in the one who owned the garment. That's why they were healed because they came to Jesus and they knew that Jesus could heal them. And the reality is Jesus doesn't just rescue us from big storms. That's how we think of it a lot. He doesn't just rescue us from sin. He also heals. And sometimes we struggle with letting Jesus heal in our daily lives in just a normal way. Like we're willing to give Jesus control when everything's out of control and it seems chaotic and I can't handle it. But like on Tuesday, are you willing to be healed? And we need to recognize that if Jesus is actually who he said he was, he has authority not just over the storm, but over everything. And if he loves us, then we can trust him to, to take that on and to heal us. All the emotional baggage, all the hard conversations, all the stuff that you just don't want to deal with and so you bury, Jesus can still deal with that too. It's probably going to take a little bit more time than touching the fringe of his garment and just boom. But the fact is, is that Jesus still has the ability to heal. So my, my big idea today was, is Jesus is our rescuer, right? Jesus is the one that rescues us. We're not self-sufficient. We can't handle this ourselves. Jesus is God in the flesh. That's why he's our rescuer, because he can actually do it. And he's our rescuer, right? If we choose to follow him, then he, he very personally invites us out to do some crazy things sometimes, and yet he rescues us. He walks us through all of those situations. He saves us from sin and, and heals us when we need it. I'm going to go through the questions out of order because the way that they logically presented themselves in the story isn't the way that they logically work in my brain. So, 
the first question in my brain, have you accepted Jesus as your savior, right? Have you made a profession and realized I cannot save myself from sin, I am incapable, I need Jesus to do this for me? That's step number one. If you've done that, the second question, and this is a reoccurring question, this isn't, I got saved, what's my next step? It is step number two. It's also a lot of the other steps as you follow Jesus, after you've been rescued. Where is Jesus asking you to step out of the boat? Right, Jesus invites us to grow. He invites us to mature and to draw closer to him. And a lot of times that looks scary and it takes a lot of faith. And so Jesus invites us to step out of the boat and we step out of the boat and we faith, in faith and we trust him and we follow him for a little bit. And then what we realize is we're really comfortable again, right? And we're happy and we're good. And then Jesus says, hey, you gotta take another step. You gotta step out of a new boat. It's a different boat. I don't know. It's a bad metaphor there. Um, <laughs> so then as we're stepping out in faith, what happens is as we're following him, okay, everything seems to be okay as long as I stay focused on Jesus and then we get distracted. Sometimes it's the storm. Sometimes it's the craziness. Sometimes it's just boredom but we lose focus and so we have to ask ourselves, what are the things that pull my focus off of Jesus? What are the things that distract me? And when we get distracted, we start to sink a little bit. So the next answer is, I need to refocus on Jesus, right? And so what changes do I need to make to spend more time with God? He's my rescuer, I only know that in reality when I focus on him, so I need to make sure that my life is structured in a way where I can consistently spend time in prayer, in reading the Bible, in being around other believers that can help me refocus and, and focus on Jesus. If the Christian life is relationship, right, then a relationship with God is what that actually means. If you don't take any time for it, it's less of a relationship. That becomes really important. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for rescuing us. We thank you for the fact that when we needed help, and we needed a lot of help, you were there. We thank you that even now, <laughs> when we need help, you're still with us, that Jesus' presence is always there. I, I thank you that when you challenge us to step out of the boat, to take a step of faith, that you're with us through that as well, that you hold our hands and that you help us to, to focus on you. I pray that that would be our lives, just following you closely, trusting you to carry us, and that whatever happens, whether we walk on water or sail across the lake, that it would be because that's where you've called us to and, and led us to do. We pray this in your name. Amen. Please stand with us if you're able. Let's sing about our great rescuer, God.